Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Today we're discussing blackness, stardom, and Brazilian television. Our guest is Dr. Bruno Guaraná, Master Lecturer of Film Studies in the Department of Film and Television at Boston University. Originally from Recife, Brazil, he received his PhD in Cinema Studies from New York University and his MA in Film from Columbia University. His current research explores negotiation of cultural citizenship in contemporary Brazilian media. He also serves as the PageViews editor for Film Quarterly. Bruno, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Thank you so much, Juan. I'm happy to be here. I'd like to start asking you about your research interests. Um, why do these topics interest you and why do you think it's an important area for us to study? Sure. Um, I actually just recently kind of discovered that my research in interest had a lot to do with how I started finding myself to be uh, um, an interested viewer of cinema. Um, it, it, it sort of coincided with the time in which Brazilian cinema was rebirthing, as we say. Um, so years later, here I am studying um, the rebirth of Brazilian cinema. And only recently did I realize that it had an association between my interests as a cinephile and what I do as a researcher. Um, but more specifically, my focus is on contemporary Brazilian media, which includes cinema, right? Um, and the participation and representation of minority groups in films, TV, and what I call peripheral or non-commercial media. Okay. So today we're discussing your article, um, Taish Araujo, The Black Elena Against Brazil's Whitening Television, which was published in Black Camera in 2018. Could you give us a brief history of this particular essay? Um, like when you began working on it, how did the project originate? How did the idea sort of change in the process of, of research and, and writing? Yeah, the article was sort of came out of my dissertation research, um, which was originally focused only on cinema until it occurred to me that cinema alone was not sufficient to discuss the impact of these texts and the ways that national identity was articulated. Um, and, and I felt that TV in particular was such an inescapable part of popular culture. Um, and consequently, discourses around identity, race, class, and others um, were very much prevalent in those texts. And, and those texts affected the way that we negotiate that in Brazil, in, in common discourse. Um, so my dissertation was just like my main, main, my, my, my main research focus on representation of minority groups in Brazilian media at large. And the focus on Thais Araújo came as an afterthought, actually. Um, she kept popping up in my research and in my discussions of different media texts, and particularly in a film by Joel Zito Araújo, who has no relationship with her, um, that was titled Daughters of the Wind. Um, and it's, it's an all-black cast melodrama film, um, and she played one of the protagonists. And um, the filmmaker has other films, including this one, that always seems to make comments on TV representation of Afro-Brazilians. So the leap from, from that focus to rethinking about TV as an important medium for that was not really very hard to make. Um, and then I started recalling the different telenovela roles that she had played, um, all of which I had seen back at home. Um, and the ways in which those roles were articulated 
in publicity materials and also um, outside of television, right? Um, so then the article came about from me thinking that I could reshift the focus away from the dissertation and really think about her celebrity persona as a framework, right? What is the status as a celebrity? Um, allow us to analyze in terms of representations of, of, of race. Can we talk a little bit about the background of, let's say, race in Brazil uh, in, in, short, in short version? So um, can we start with talking about what you mentioned as the myth of racial democracy, uh, which is, seems to be an important aspect to think about how race is and is not represented in Brazilian popular culture, but then also in media. So um, what is the myth of racial democracy? Like, where is it coming from and why is it important to think about in terms of thinking about race in Brazil. Yeah, that is sort of the term that everybody who writes about race in Brazil has to struggle with at some point. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping that I would not have to address that in the article. Um, and, and, but one of my reviewers sort of said, you can't just drop the, the, the term there. You have to unpack it for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but, but the literature around the myth of racial democracy is so large um, that you feel like there's so much, work they have to do just review that literature and then condense it and try to to you know convey it in one or two paragraphs so that the article does not become an article about racial democracy um but it so so this this little anecdote should just show that the term itself is quite a contentious one right mm -hmm. um it was once very much celebrated and used to explain the lack of a legal racial segregation in Brazil, like the one we see in the history of South Africa and even in the US, for example, but eventually became criticized by scholars for the way it helped curtail or maybe even dismiss systemic racial inequalities in the country. Mm -hmm. um, and what I find really curious about the term is that it is no longer in vogue in popular vernacular. Like nobody talks about Brazil as being a racial democracy anymore, but the sentiment remains very much present in more subtle ways, ways than that. Um, so the, 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 the term is almost uh, directly inspired by the writings of Gilberto Freire, who was a sociologist um, writing the 30s. Um, and it, the myth itself goes more or less like this, right? So during the colonial period, you have the Portuguese colonists, owners of large plantations that would often go to bed or in, in Freire's work uh, to the hammock with enslaved women and sometimes with indigenous women, mm -hmm. um, generating mixed race babies that eventually mix among themselves and create a beautiful race fluid population that we see in Brazil today. Right. Um, so it's sort of like this rosy depiction of, of maybe not so much a loving bond, but some sort of a bond between masters and slaves. Um, and um, which I think is, is the, the, the title of the, of, of Freire's book in, in English. Um, but I think that in a way the fable, right. Seems to explain why many individuals in Brazil can't really tell you their ethnic background myself included in that, right? So it's just easier to say that we're all mixed. Um, but the myth also papers over racial and gender violence that is implicit in this rosy narrative of love um, because what he's describing really is um, rape, right? Or colonial rip, rape. Um, and this is what I think is what uh, Gilliam calls the great sperm theory of national foundation that I mentioned in the article. It's really a term that she uses to critique this colonial rhetoric that celebrates the genetic whitening of colored people by way of miscegenation, right? I think it would be comparable to the idea that colonialism has brought civilization to all four, four corners of the world. 
Um, and, and I think by dismissing the idea that there is race at all in Brazil, the myth also helps us ignore both symbolic and structural racism. Um, you know, and I think that, I think the main implication on a day-to-day basis is that racism is often explained by other factors. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that a lot of this, the, the sort of erasure of, um, let's say, ethnic backgrounds because of all the, all the mixing um, becomes itself then a tool that can be used to perpetuate specific um, racial dynamics, right, or specific hierarchies, um, even to today, right? I think at some point you mentioned there's this uh, sort of implicit pride around miscegenation that is just like everyone was mixing with everyone as if that was a, a celebratory impulse, right? Exactly. And then that becomes the tool of obfuscation and, and contemporary control too. And I think also it prevents us from really seeing, uh, I don't think any issue is, is uniquely or, or exclusively racial, right? But there, mm-hmm. there are racial components in, in nearly every issue in Brazil. Um, so, so to think about a society that is racially democratic, whatever that means, it's a term that doesn't even make a lot of sense, um, leads us to, to ignore the racial components of a lot of the social issues that we experience. Right, right, for sure. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned is um, from Carl Degler, the idea of the mulatto as a, as a sort of escape hatch to, to, again, avoid these kinds of conversations. Can you tell us more about that, how that operates? Yeah. The mulatto is an interesting term because uh, it doesn't really apply in Portuguese. Um, mulatto is a word in Portuguese, but we don't use it to refer to mm-hmm. people. Um, so it's an interesting, um, I guess, term that Degler ap- applies when he, he talks about this escape hatch. Um, but I think that the the more appropriate racial euphemism would be the moreno or morena, right? So the brown mm-hmm. um, or the tan person. Um, and it really indicates, and I think that that's what, what Degler is, is speaking about, it indicates the ability that one may have to pass as white by making use of other markers, right? Beyond their, their skin color. Um, right. So someone may adopt clothing or hairstyle or speech um, to present as belonging to a different class or to be more educated, um, which, you know, so there are associations between race and class that are hard to untangle. Um, and then uh, some people in, in Daigler's term, the mulatto is able to actually navigate between these two different social spheres um, by adopting non-racial appendages, right? And, and I think that that's really the key feature of, of Thais Araujo's career here is that while her earlier characters were presented as passing, even as a slave, right, and therefore being able to participate in a white society, today I think she can no longer play this kind of character because she can no longer be dissociated from her racial identity. She has worked so hard to present herself as Black um, that to be all of a sudden to have her play a character who's Black passing as white no longer makes sense, Right. Um, and and th- that's very unique in her trajectory to be able to have the popular appeal that she holds today um, while not having to, you know, bend over to participate in a mostly white circle that television is. Right, right. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned the that she had to construct that 
persona or that image around presenting herself as black, right? Because it points us to, well, to a number of things, but the fact that race isn't just skin color, right? That it is implicating all of these other structural aspects, um, but also that it, it isn't, it can't be divorced, as you mentioned earlier, from things like class, right? Um, or other forms of status as well, because it's very different from someone like a television star to be able to negotiate how they present, um, whether they present as black or not, than it might be from um, someone who's like working class background, right? Um, so those kinds of privileges and statuses also also affect too, right? Absolutely, and I think you're you're getting to a point that became really important in my dissertation work and you see a little bit of that in this article which is the idea of intersectionality and intersectionality became the core framework of analysis for my dissertation because i was dealing with race gender class and sexuality and it was really hard to manage all of that um and all of a sudden i started bringing all these texts together to then unpack the different axes of identity and oppression that were present in these texts right so um, you can imagine Thais Araujo, for example, going to a jewelry store and not having to to dress in any particular way or to speak in any particular way because of her, her recognizable figure, right? Um, whereas someone who's a working class black woman um, may have to dress up, may have to present in a certain way so that she is seen at the store um, as an able consumer, right? Um, so, so all of these, these different axes become very important to analyze really the effect that these presentations have. Right. For sure. And so television is crucial in all of this, right? Both, both as a medium of representation, right? So like television images help in some way shape these ideas that we have about race, um, beyond or reduced to skin color, but then the television industry itself is can be separated from these broader social dynamics, right? Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the how this plays out in Brazilian television or how this has played out historically and any sort of contemporary changes to um, race in Brazilian television? Yeah, Joao Zivaraujo, who's the filmmaker I mentioned earlier, um, he has written about the marginalization of black individuals on Brazilian television, on the level of representation, as well as on the level of production. Um, and he has a wonderful documentary called Denying Brazil, uh, which actually includes a pun in Portuguese with the word black. Um, um, so it would, yeah, like it, w- it would be a, a play with blackening Brazil and then denying Brazil at the same time. Okay. Um, and in that documentary, he interviews a lot of uh, black actors who have worked in the golden age of Brazilian television, and, and they, they talk about their experience. Um, but one thing that he says that, that I think is quite significant is that because television production was, for most of its history, a um, it required a certain level of skill that was available only to the bourgeoisie in, in Brazil, then you have mainly white TV producers and white TV writers, um, male writers as well, right? And directors and so forth, um, writing about white-centric stories um, and producing white-centric narratives. Um, But because TV is both, or telenovelas in particular, which is the focus of this article, because telenovelas are both um, 
tend to be realistic and also um, respond to to the audience's expectations and what they're thinking about the text, um, I think that there's a tendency towards um, a more faithful depiction of society, but it takes a long time for that to happen, right? So we see a lot of that um, in representation of queer characters. There's a there's a very gradual and noticeable trajectory from you know marginal gay characters to protagonist gay characters um, in telenovelas. Um, I think race has taken a little bit longer to appear as something that becomes a, a, um, a narrative component, right? So you have a lot of black actors playing marginal roles, um, you know, second or third tier roles, um, many of them being um, working class roles, some of them um, on the upper class as well. And it is, it has been very rare up until the appearance of Thais Araujo for black actors to get the top billing. Um, so, and I, again, I think as, 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 as illustrated in her case, it doesn't necessarily mean that race is going to be important for the narrative. Um, you know, even, if it, even though they might have cast black people. Right. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic because I think we think of it both in the level of production and representation. There, there has been this historical, um, exclusion of black people from the television industry. Right. Um, and then there might have been moves towards including more black actors and maybe even some black creatives behind the scenes. Um, but as you point out, one of the, one of the consequences of this sort of idea of racial democracy, even if it's not uh, named as such, is that it can include black actors without um, actually positing them as black characters, right? Uh, it can become that sort of empty celebration of representation of, oh, now we have black actors in it, but the characters are not coded as black. There's nothing specific to them. It's essentially, they could be replaced by a white actor, but they were just cast the black actor instead, right? Right. The other thing I think that's important to think about, and, and this has to do with political economy of television in Brazil, um, that's very different from the United States, but not very different from Latin America in general, is that you really have very few networks operating. Um, and so you don't have the kind of specialized audience that American cable television has been able to produce and then cater to, right, by, by specifically creating shows that depict blackness or, or made by black producers. Um, in Brazil, you have this intent to have universal appeal right, for mainstream popular audiences on network television. Um, so you have global with the near monopoly of TV production and, and TV audiences, really. Um, so that creates a bottleneck that's really hard to get through um, if you're not already part of that circle. Right, right. Yes, I think as, as I was reading the, your explanation of how global sort of does that. I, I kept thinking of Televisa in Mexico, right. right? So which is a sort of very similar parallel of basically someone really controlling most of the television market for a very long time. And so that really prevents any kind of change um, in terms of reach. But then that uh, from a political economy perspective, that also means that there aren't any channels, alternative, that many alternative channels where um, other forms of representation can happen, right? So it ends up being just self-perpetuating. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah. And 
Specific, I guess the other parallel is thinking about telenovelas, right? I think you mentioned that one of the characteristics of telenovelas is this appeal to, to realism, right? Or to seem like they are part of stories, part of real life. Um, and also by the way that they're consumed on a sort of um, day-to-day basis, uh, it also becomes the kind of media that, that people follow on, on their day-to-day lives, right? So that in itself has a specific role in perpetuating certain social norms, um, but also could have a, uh, an important role in questioning those norms and pushing on it because it's so popular, and so prevalent as well. Telenovela texts become part of real life in a weird way. Um, mm-hmm. So there is this this trend in in some present telenovelas, which is that they often adopt um, a social issue um, to address, right? Um, so all of a sudden, that social issue is then reproduced in TV news shows and then on magazines. And then, um, you know, even though it's a fictional character on the TV, then you have special um, interview columns on certain periodicals that talk to real people that are experiencing the the issue that's being addressed on TV. Um, So, you know, it, it really, it's very easy for television to, for telenovelas to insert a particular um, topic into national discourse, right? And, and have that reverberate in many ways, which is why I thought that in my in my research, I could not just simply ignore TV, right? Because cinema doesn't often do that. Yeah. So talking specifically about the telenovela and the social issue, one of the things that you uh, mentioned in the article is that as there was more opportunities for Black cast members to, to join telenovelas, a lot of them, more Black actors cast in uh, telenovelas that were about historical narratives. Um, and that had to do with the, the sort of pushing the, the conversation about race to the past. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about that? Um, when you have a TV show that's set in the past, in colonial times, right, um, that has to address slavery, you kind of need a lot of Black actors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and they, still, they still don't make up even 50% of the cast, uh, which in reality should be the case. Um, right. But but all of a sudden, you kind of see the efforts that television can take, can make to um, to find Black actors, right? Yes, they do exist. Yes, they are looking for work. Yes, they're very talented. But they don't, don't often get outside of that um, sort of historical period. Um, right. But I also think that what these historical narratives give TV the chance to address is racism more particularly. Mm-hmm. If you have a, a, um, a, a show that addresses slavery there, it, it's, it's embedded in racism, right? The, the narrative is embedded in racism and it's addressing racism at every turn. Um, but the, because it's not realistic, because it's not contemporaneous, perhaps I shouldn't say realistic, right? But because it's not representing what looks like the current reality, it's easier to say, yes, there was racism in Brazil, right? But this is, this is something that we have overcome. Um, and at the same time that it gives this impression, we have a number of examples of um, telenovela is centered on indigeneity and um, blackness um, in, in earlier periods in Brazilian history, whose protagonists are white actors or actresses that use makeup to look a little darker. It doesn't go as fast as far as blackface per se, 
Um, but there's a lot of discussion, right? Um, and sometimes you just get a Moreno or Moreno and then have, even though they have no connection with, with the identity they're depiction, depicting because of their star value. All right. So let's move to the, um, the actress that you specifically write about in, in this article. Um, so can you give us a, a, a brief sort of introduction to uh, Thais Araujo's career and star persona um, and why it's the, you sort of focus on these, on these moments, uh, important moments in her career. I had this, this memory of Thais Araujo being called the first black protagonist more than once. So then that led me to my research, right? Um, was she really the first black protagonist? Um, if so, in what ways? Um, her career starts, I want to say 95, in a um, smaller network that was quite popular at the time um, called Manchetti. It no longer exists. Um, and she worked with Avancini, a, a, a TV director, that then started casting his next um, TV show, Chica da Silva, a telenovela, um, which was about the the real story of an enslaved woman who gets freed and then marries a white man um, and and becomes one of the wealthiest wo- women in the village um, in Minas Gerais. Um, so so this figure is quite mythical in Brazilian history, um, even though historians have demonstrated how she was not particularly unique in in that transition from slavery to being part of the 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 white society, right? Um, but but it is a very interesting figure. So so Avancini was casting this show and he his the actress that was slated to to play the, the protagonist role um, dropped out because she didn't want to appear nude on television. And that was one of the requirements. Right. Thais Araujo was just starting her career. She was 17 years old then um, and Avancini invited her with no audition. Um, given that he had worked with her before, to play the lead role, and you can imagine that this is a, this is any actor's dream job to to star as the the lead in a telenovela at the beginning of your career. Um, and you know, given that we hadn't seen a lot of black representation in telenovelas up until that point, it seems like something an offer you can't refuse. Um, and and then she moved on to other important roles um, and. She sort of proved her star value with the fact that her she continues to be successful in in, in the characters that she plays in different telenovelas. Um, not always as a, as the protagonist. In fact, only a few times she has been the protagonist. Um, but but undeniably, I think for anyone who watches television, she her star level is comparable to any other contemporary white female actress at, at this time. And I should say she was not the first black protagonist at all. There has been, there had been one earlier on, I forget, I want to say in the sixties or seventies, um, Houti de Souza, um, who played the lead character in an adaptation of uncle Tom's cabin. Um, but mm-hmm. she lost her top billing as the, the telenovela played out, um, because people weren't as interested in her character. Um, right. So eventually she moved from protagonist to just a secondary or, or third rate character. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, we see this practice in, in other industries around the world where it's the promotion of a, the first, right. Or using the casting of a non-white actor. 
um, in any form as the sort of promotional hook, right? So being the first black protagonist, even if she wasn't, um, and but people can't remember when the last one was. So right. that in itself enables all the promotional material around around the telenovela, right? Yeah, and they use that three times <laughs> for for the that, three and, no, novellas that she that she played the lead role for. Yeah, yeah, it just makes it even more funny, but also telling that that she would be the first black protagonist three times in a row, as if the first one didn't count. We forgot about that one, but now yes. <laughs> let's, let's talk about this. There's one. always a qualifier, right? So she was the first protagonist ever. Then she was the first protagonist in global at Global Network, and then right. she was the first protagonist in a primetime telenovela at Global, right? So it becomes more and more specific. Um, yeah. And then I, th I haven't seen any other attempt to, to cast her as first on anything after yeah. that. To, to rise in the hierarchy in that. Exactly. So one of the things that, so the, the first one mentioned is Chica de Silva, right? Which was in a smaller network. Um, but then the sort of first at Globo is De Acuerdo Picado, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, and both of these in some way are doing this, the first black protagonist as a sort of promotional strategy. But in the story, there's, there's also drawing attention to um, her character's blackness, right, in some ways. Um, so what are some sort of point of connections there and differences in how the narrative sort of treats Arash's character as, as black? Yeah, so both of those uh, narratives address passing, right? So it is about race and it is about a raced character attempting to inhabit a world in which it doesn't originally belong to. Um, mm -hmm. So Chica da Silva is the freed slave, um, and then um, Da Codo Pecado is about this street vendor in Maranhão, which is a northeastern state in Brazil, um, who falls in love with a, I forget his, some kind of um, academic or researcher um, from Rio, a white researcher from Rio. Um, and then they, they have a romantic relationship. She gets pregnant with him um, and he dies in an accident. He has a twin brother, you know, typical telenovela kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. but, but the important thing is that he dies. Um, and then six or seven years later, her son wants to know the whereabouts of his father's side of the family. So she right. travels to Rio and she finds out that the, the father had another fiance who also got pregnant. So her son has a brother by way of the father, right? Right. Um, and so she is doing that for her son because he wants to meet his family but she wants nothing from the family. She doesn't want any money. She doesn't want any connection and she's doing it for the son. But the presence of her son in that white family, his, his grandfather happens to be a millionaire, um, seems to threaten the well-being of the family, especially the financial well-being of the family. And it turns out that the fiance um, is actually the villain of the story. So she often addresses um, or, or she presents race, racist attitudes or racist behaviors um, that makes sense because it's all always treated as symbolic, right? Now, this is this is a character who's inherently bad, so of course she'd be racist. This is not something you would see out in the street, right? So even when it does address um, racism, it can always be justified by way of someone's overall badness. Um, but absolutely, right? So what's interesting in these two cases here is that the publicity material that really promotes Taizar Araujo as the black protagonist in these telenovelas pays off, right? Because they are actually addressing 
um, racial relations in Brazil. Right. And that's, that's quite significant and rare. Right, right. And it does in some way, in the text and outside of the text, put that, um, all that burden on her, right? So mm-hmm. she does become this uh, first protagonist in a telenovela, first protagonist in a global telenovela, uh, but also her character is, is carrying this narrative um, of passing and um, racial dispute, if you will, um, but all on herself, right? It becomes the like all the other white characters around her, um, and she's the one that is sort of uh, point making a point of difference in that sense too. Yeah, and mind you too, like as it's the case with most telenovelas the lead role is often very hard to carry because they're the victims. They don't have interesting narrative arcs. They're not surprising in many ways. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a racial component to this. As you mentioned, there's also a gender component to this, um, right. right? That she's always involved in romantic relationships, that it is always the male character who saves her or who, who mm-hmm. places her in a different social sphere. Um, so her upward social mobility goes through marriage or sexual relations with a white man, right? right? But you're absolutely right. Like the burden of being the black actor who is, you know, making or breaking for an entire group of people who might come after you is, is quite intense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it, it becomes a, because of the genre, it becomes a trap, right? Because on the one hand, you want to celebrate the, protagonist and and the hiring of a black actress for this principal role but because it is a telenovela the principal role is the perhaps the least interesting one so it ends up um putting her outside the text in this privileged position or something that the promotion can really draw attention to but within the text she sort of becomes just the the vessel for the story to carry on and all the interesting characters are left to yeah to the others right and I, I think also what's what's really unique about her career is that she has played a number of secondary characters that are inherently more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that allows her to break out of this particular mold, right? Um, and and that adds to her uh, the ability and and or or her appeal to become protagonist later in other telenovelas as well. Right. Right. So even in your article title, you call her the Black Elena. Um, so can you tell us more about how that came about? Like, how did she become the Black Elena and where does that come from? Um, and what's the background there? Yeah, I can't claim that term as my own. Um, and, and the, the, the tragedy of this term is that that's how she was referred to, uh, when the casting was announced, right? She would be the first Black Elena. Um, so alongside being the first Black protagonist in a primetime TV television show on, at Global. She was the Black Elaine. And so um, the writer of this show, Vivera Vida, um, was Manuel Carlos. And he's, um, he was, he doesn't write anymore, but he, he um, his telenovelas were always very popular um, and very sort of eventful in the way that Global promoted when they were upcoming, promoted them when they were upcoming. Right. And his protagonists were always named Elena. Um, I think it was his mother's name. I forget. And she would become the first Black Elena. Um, and uh, that was heavily publicized, right? So you have Thais Araujo, two-time protagonist, being the first Black Elena ever. Um, and um, the history with that, I've seen some interviews in which she talks about um, going through a phase in which she wanted to take a break from acting. 
Mm-hmm. But she got a call from Manuel Carlos himself saying that he wanted her to play the role. And she thought really hard about it. But she, again, she felt that's not an offer I can refuse. Because if I don't take it, it we're going to have an, a white Elena again. And this this is an opportunity that's never, never going to come back to me or to anyone else, right? Um, so she felt this kind of pressure, um, unspoken pressure to take the role. Um, and it was a really hard role for her to take because unlike the previous roles that she did as protagonists, as protagonists, um, this one was not about race. It actually erased her race in many different ways. So this was a character that might as well have been played by a white actress and no one Mm -hmm. would have told the difference. Um, her mother in the show and her sister appear to be a lot more raced, narratively speaking, than she was. Um, but she, she, nothing about her storyline was about race at all. Um, and I think because of her trajectory on television up until that point, um, it became a problematic text, text a problematic fit, um, because she could no longer be accepted as a morena even, right? Um, mm-hmm. And there were... There were interactions among characters, um, especially positioning her as the victim in, in many different situations that to most people watching the telenovela seemed to be racial attitudes, but they were not addressed as such. They were addressed as personal vendetta. They were addressed as bickering. Um, and so even though race was not part of the telenovela, there were some things that seemed racist in the way that her character was suffering but it amounted to gender issues or class issues, right? Um, or professional issues even. Um, and nobody liked her character. So, you know, speaking like we were before about this uninteresting character, it was, it was quite challenging for that character to survive as a protagonist um, because there was not much more you could do um, with that. So what about after that? Because you end by talking about how she... What has allowed her since then is the fact that she is a very famous actress um, and a celebrity. She's been able to take control of her star image to some to some extent, right? And since she's already been positioned in a way that she won't be cast as anything other than black, right? Um, how does that allow her to do certain things now in terms of um, the kinds of projects that, he, that she does and how she presents herself? She continued to have important roles on television. Um, there is one um, telenovela that's not the super prime time, um, but it was called Shea's de Charme, about three maids that accidentally make a music video that go, goes viral on the internet. Um, and uh, they become superstars overnight. Um, so she was one of those three maids and, and she was the only black one. Um, so her race was somewhat part of the narrative, um, but mm-hmm. at that point it was less important, right? Like, cause she was already reading as black. Um, but more significantly than these TV roles that, you know, in terms of industry practices, she doesn't really have a lot of control over. She has produced um, a, a play alongside her husband, um, on the mountaintop, I think is the name in, in English by Katori Hall. Um, and that sort of is a fictional account of the last day of Martin Luther King. Um, and and they played, he, her husband played Martin Luther King and she played a maid 
in the hotel that he stayed the night before his assassination. Um, and they both produced and acted, right? And, and, and I, I can't remember who directed the show. Um, but that's very much taking control over the roles that she's playing. Um, and they had a very uh, well-received TV series um, that I think lasted for three or, or four seasons called Mr. Brau. Um, that was about a, also alongside her husband. So her husband played a character who was, um, who's a, a singer, mm-hmm. a very popular singer. And she played his dancer on stage. Um, but it was really focused on their relationship as a married couple, super wealthy. Um, and that show had repercussions in international media as well. Um, so some newspapers picked it up compare them to Beyonce and Jay-Z, which is a silly comparison, but you know, it, it sort of points to this idea of celebrity and stardom yeah. um, that they carry. Um, and also I think that the work that she's been doing on her social media accounts is really relevant. Um, and it sounds silly to talk about social media, but it is an important outlet for these artists to, mm-hmm. to speak on their own terms. The other day I saw that she spent a very long time using her Instagram stories to, detail the process of going to bed um, while preparing her hair for the next day. Um, and it was so long that in the middle she says, this was a bad idea. I knew I would regret doing this and it's been three hours. I'm still working on this, but you don't see black women, um, you know, in their bathroom with no makeup, doing her hair for hours and hours and hours, sweating and telling their audiences about the process, right? What's, what's right, what's wrong, how it's working, how it's not working, how it's difficult. Um, and again, I think that is in many ways um, reclaiming her own identity, right? And reclaiming her own image. This is what I present. And she has hosted um, interviews, talk shows, and, and beauty-related uh, TV shows on cable television. Um, so it seems like she is, she's not necessarily autonomous, Right, but she doesn't need anyone else to sort of have a show of her own, if that makes sense, right? Um, that that she seems to carry a lot of power and clout in the in the in the media industry. Right, right, and it do, it seems even part of a a lineage of her earlier decisions uh, in taking like um, the Vivera Vida, the primetime global role and like this is important for me to do uh, because there's always been a white Elena so someone has to be the first black Elena to then now uh, doing in many other types of media to think about the the sort of impetus and in some ways the burden of that representation that falls on her. I saw in an interview um, her say that after Vivera Vida she considered quitting acting altogether that's that you know due to the amount of criticism that she received so right. the, the disappointment with her character translated a lot as disappointment with her as an actress. She also mentions, I think in that same interview, that she continues to receive invitations to be on the cover of different fashion magazines in Brazil. And mm-hmm. uh, she keeps telling them, I'm not the only black actress out there, right? Right. But, Stop inviting me. Sure, I'll take it this time, but but you need like look at everybody else who has worked with me. Even if you if you know my body of work, you know other people um, who mm-hmm. could be in, uh, you know illustrating these magazines. Uh, so so it's both that right, both knowing 
the responsibility that she has because of her star value in continuing this line of representation, but also how she also needs to step down or step aside so that other people have the same kind of opportunities. Right, right. Even in, in the international press, her like um, the parallel to calling her Beyonce and her husband JC uh, means that all of these journalists didn't have another point of reference uh, or they didn't exactly. have a lot of points of reference for, for black celebrities. So any, any black popular black celebrity around the world becomes the new Beyonce exactly. uh, yes. in that sense. Right. But related to that. So the, the question that she keeps getting asked to appear on the cover of magazines asked because the editors decided that we need a black actress on it. And that was the only person they could think of. Um, your analysis is focused specifically on her because of the, all these significant roles and trajectory um, and what that's meant for, for Black representation on Brazilian television. But more contemporarily, can you think of other Brazilian stars that are doing something similar or that their career is taking off, but in different ways and how they're managing uh, race in that star persona? I think um, we see a much more diverse representation in cinema um, and I would, uh, and even in theater, and I would single out Grace Passo, who's an actress from Minas Gerais, um, who's been doing a lot of interesting work. Um, and also Isabel Zalois, who was in a, in a very um, sort of crazy, interesting uh, genre film called Good Manners um, <laughs> that, that I highly recommend. Um, but on television, we have Lazaro Ramos, who I can't believe I haven't said his name yet, who is Thais Araujo's husband. Um, he's had a lot of television roles um, and he starred in Madame Satan, um, which is a, a, a queer film um, that sort of launched his career. Um, and Camilo Pitanga, I think, would be another big actress, black actress, who has similar star value than that Thais Araujo does. Um, and in fact, there is a book out uh, called... Imagining the Mulata by Jasmine Mitchell. And, and it has a, a section about Camilo Pitanga, talking specifically about that, how people have perceived her race. Um, her, her father is a very important black actress in, black actor in Brazil. Um, but people have seen Camilo Pitanga more as morena than as black. Mm. And Camilo Pitanga has consistently um, affirmed herself as black. Right, but there is this resistance to see her as such. Um, so her skin color is much lighter than Thais Araujo. Um, and, and she has played a number of, of important roles in television. Um, and I think a new generation, um, there is uh, an actress called Lucy Ramos uh, from Recife, actually, my hometown, um, who's been working a lot on television. And I think her big breakthrough was a, a role that Thais Araujo couldn't take because she was pregnant. Um, so mm -hmm. again, like this idea of stepping aside and allow someone else to, to, to take mm -hmm. over um, might have been a, a good entryway for Lucy Holmes to appear. Um, and I think that if she continues to work at the pace that she is, she will become someone w with a similar kind of, of importance as Thais Araujo has today. Right, right. So that's, I mean, that's, um, so that's, a good sign, perhaps, right? The the ability for new actors to uh, to be able to take on these roles. Um, it definitely seems like structurally there's still much change to be done, especially 
Um, as you mentioned, actresses who may be able to pass have to consciously keep uh, reaffirming their blackness as part of their star persona, because otherwise they very easily industry-wide could be try to push back to, to being white passing and, and yeah. believing that. It doesn't become black representation, right? If you're a Moreno or a Moreno, like that's not what it reads as. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is that there is a change in a quantitative change in black representation on television. We have a lot more black actors working today. Um, and it's not, it's not enough, right? It hasn't changed significantly, but there has been a change. So that might also explain why I can't think of one person in the new generation who is a standout because you have other people along their side, right? So maybe we're going to see a group of people, um, working more and more and more and appearing frequently um, rather than uh, one or two stars like we have with, with Camilo Pitanga, Thais Araujo, and Lazaro Ramos. Right, right. Yeah. So that's another good sign, I think. That's a good sign. Yeah. yeah. So what kind of, um, what are the areas that you're working on now or your new project working towards? What I'm focusing on right now is actually um, this film that I mentioned earlier, Madame Satan, that actually has Lazaro Ramos as its protagonist um, mm-hmm. um, because we're coming up to its 20th anniversary. Um, and mm-hmm. I feel like the film has been overlooked um, and I consider it to be a queer classic. Um, and I kind of want to re- rekindle an interest on this film mm-hmm. um, and that that article should be published on film quarterly next year. Um, and, um, so, so I find Madame Satan to have a uh, resonance with many other queer films that have come after. Um, and even in the ways in which the film can be seen as quite problematic for today's standards, but that was very much groundbreaking at the time. And the film is, is very much intersectional. Right? So you have, a, um, mm-hmm a drag queen character at its center um, who is of a lower class and who's black um, and who tries to use force and his masculinity to then assert himself before the police who are trying to capture him because he's black and gay. Um, So there are many layers to this character um, and, and the film attempts to unpack the character for us and fails at doing so. I think that's the whole point of the film, not being able Mm -hmm. to reveal the core identity of someone nobody has core identities right um right, but it, right. it's it's about how you negotiate it right right uh bruno thank you for joining us thank you so much it was a pleasure this episode of the global media cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by alan Yu, and closing credits music by cloudmouth This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.